today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciple went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me once again? Father, your, your servant Job, a long time ago, confessed that he was considering and saying things that were far beyond him, things too wonderful and too deep, too profound to truly comprehend. Father, this morning we approach your word and we contemplate the royal glory of your eternal Son. Father, these are truly things that are too deep, too profound for us to truly comprehend. So we pray that by your spirit and by your grace, you'd give us some insight into the eternal and universal and yet still very personal implications of what it means to hail your son Jesus as king. Thank you. In his precious name we pray. Amen. Uh, do you ever wish that you could go back to your younger self and teach your younger self some of the lessons you now have learned being a little bit older? I wish I could go back to when I was a, a kid and teach myself, impress upon myself the value of, of learning music, learning how to sing, learning, learning how to play an instrument, at least learning how to clap on beat. That way when I was 41... The senior pastor wouldn't be able to mock me, and uh, Bob, it hurts. Hurts real bad. So, if I could rewind to my college years, I would impress upon myself the importance of not using your credit card to take a trip to Fiji. Uh, it took a decade or so to pay that off. If I could go back to my newlywed years, I'd impress upon myself the importance of nonverbal communication. And tell myself that you can say the right things, but still be wrong. Uh, this was a scene that played out many, 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 many times in our little Chicago apartment. I would say to my wife, this is what I said. And she would reply, it's not what you said, it's... 
how you said it. As I remember those interactions, and I read this story, I think there's a little bit of that same dynamic going on. Uh, The crowds are saying the right things. They're spot on with the words they're using. And yet, they're still so very wrong because they, they're misunderstanding what those words mean, what those titles that they're bestowing upon Jesus truly mean. Uh, this scene unfolds, and I think uh, we're going to use three words to describe this scene and the, the narrative arc of this it's a really familiar story, isn't it? I mean, it's one we come back to every Palm Sunday. And I want to focus this not so much on the colt and the donkey and, and that, but on the crowds and what they're singing and what they're doing. And use three words to kind of describe this, this narrative, this arc that we see going on. The first is, you see it up there, Anticipation. The crowds were filled with anticipation of what Jesus' arrival meant, and it spills over into celebration, exuberance. But eventually all of that will give way to disillusionment. Because what we see here is that this anticipation that has been building for centuries is somewhat misguided. And so their celebration is just slightly out of focus. And it will all collapse eventually into disillusionment, disenchantment. And that's not just something that those large crowds on the hill outside of Jerusalem experienced. It's something that if we aren't careful, if we don't guard ourselves against it, we can experience too. If our anticipation isn't rightly attuned by the Word of God, we can easily fall into disappointment. So let's look at these these three words, these three parts of the narrative, and see where the whole thing kind of goes off the rails. First, there's this anticipation. Uh, This anticipation had been building for centuries. It goes all the way back to the time of King David, 800, maybe close to 900 years prior to the time of Jesus. And this anticipation, it was building, and Israel was filled with this longing and this expectancy. It wasn't just nostalgia. It wasn't just longing for the good old days under you know, good old King David. It was rooted, this expectancy and anticipation was rooted in promises that God had given to David. David had fought many battles, had conquered many of Israel's worst enemies, had given them peace and rest. They were no longer being harassed by their neighbors on each side. And he had extended Israel's boundaries, and they were prospering. And David said to the Lord, it doesn't seem right that I'm living in this palace made out of cedar and your ark, the very symbol of your presence, is in a tent. I mean, it's a pretty grand, glorious, big, extravagant tent, but it's, it's a tent. 
And it's meant to be mobile. And it's old now. Let me build you a house fit for your glory, for your ark. And God says through his prophet Nathan to David, No, not you. You want to build me a house, but I'm going to build you a house. Not a physical four-walled structure, but a house as in a dynasty. This is what God says to David through Nathan. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. That prophecy that came through Nathan immediately points to Solomon, David's son, who will succeed him and will build this grand, glorious temple, a house for the name of the Lord. Solomon fulfills partially the prophecy, but he doesn't exhaust the fulfillment of that prophecy because God goes on and he says, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. There's a couple different ways that prophecy could be fulfilled. It could mean that there will be an endless succession of Davidic kings, sons of David who sit on the throne of Israel, one right after the other in perpetuity forever and ever. That didn't happen. David's dynasty was a long, long dynasty, about 400 years, which is like twice as long as America's been around, right? It was an incredibly long dynasty in the ancient Near East, but it's not quite forever. Eventually, other empires arose, and God sent Israel into captivity as punishment for their unfaithfulness, their disloyalty, their sin and idolatry. And the Davidic line ends, at least on the throne. But the expectancy, this hope, didn't die. There was this anticipation that God would raise up another son of David who would reestablish the Davidic reign. And that's what you see in Israel at the time of Jesus. This hope that that line would be reestablished and would continue on. There's another way that that prophecy of an established forever kingdom could be fulfilled. It could be an endless succession of Davidic kings, or it could be an endless Davidic king. One king who reigned forever. One son of David who sat on the throne of the kingdom forever and ever. And that seems to be the way the prophets point. The prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 9, and you will certainly recognize these words, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. 
He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. You recognize those words because we read them every Advent season, right? Because at Advent, we're announcing, we're heralding the arrival of this long-awaited son of David who will be the eternal king. Now, it's likely that the crowds hadn't connected those dots. They were still thinking of a Messiah who would come and reestablish this succession of Davidic kings. And here, they've identified the one who's been appointed, the one who has been anointed Messiah, Christ, the one who would do it. And the anticipation is swelling, it's cresting, it's peaking, and it's beginning to shift. No longer are they waiting and longing for the one who will arrive and anticipating of, anticipation of that. Now that he's here, they're anticipating what is he going to do now that he's on the scene. The anticipation hasn't gone away, it's, it's, it's shifting. Like every March, baseball starts, okay, it's baseball season. There was like zero to negative 10% chance you were getting away without a baseball illustration, okay? Every March, baseball preseason starts, and you're anticipating opening day, the first real game of the season. And it comes, and that first pitch is thrown out, and the anticipation of it starting has kind of ended, but it's not ended, it's now changed. And now you're anticipating, well, maybe my team can make the playoffs. Maybe they'll win a game in the playoffs, If you're the Cubs, maybe not. But there's this anticipation. If you're engaged, you have that same dynamic. You're anticipating the wedding date. And it comes. And if you're the groom, you're standing here and you're anticipating the bride. If you're the bride, you're anticipating that moment. That celebration of the wedding. But anticipation doesn't go away when you're married. It just changes. And now you're anticipating what life will be like. As you're married, as you buy a house, as you have kids, as you celebrate anniversaries, all of that. That's what you're witnessing here. This anticipation swelling, morphing, changing, and spilling over into celebration. But the problem is it's been misguided, ill-informed. This anticipation, it's... Ill-informed because the crowds haven't taken into account all that the prophets said. Yes, the Messiah, the King. But they had missed somehow that the Messiah, the King, was also the servant of the Lord. Who would be the suffering servant. And somehow the crowds had had tuned out what Jesus had said about not coming to be served, but coming to serve and to lay down his life as a sacrifice. And somehow the crowd's anticipation of what Messiah would look like overrode the fact, and they didn't notice the fact that he was riding a donkey and not a war horse. He wasn't coming on the war path but instead on an ironically victorious death march. 
He wasn't coming to kill, but to die. So this anticipation that has been somewhat misguided and ill-informed spills over to celebration that will be out of focus as a result. The crowds are laying their garments down in front of Jesus. And they're cutting down palm branches and and the children are, are waving the palm branches and they're laying them before Jesus so he can ride in on these cloaks and the palm branches. And to us that seems a very unique way of of celebrating Jesus' entering into Jerusalem. And it is unique, but in the history of Israel it's not utterly unique. The same way of celebrating, you could look back into Israel's history, 141 B.C., And Simon Maccabeus, who had, with his brothers, led a successful revolt against the tyrant Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was an oppressive king who had actually set up in the temple a statue of Zeus and defiled the temple. And Simon Maccabeus and his brother Judas had led a revolt and succeeded in overthrowing the Seleucid, kind of a leftover of the Greek empire, rule. And as Simon Maccabeus is entering Jerusalem, this is how they greet him, with palm branches being waved, being laid at his feet, singing praises and hymns as he would go in to cleanse and rededicate the temple. In the crowd's minds, in essence, they're recreating that. They're heralding Jesus. They're welcoming Jesus as a conquering king. A king who will come in and drive out the oppressor. Do away with the enemy. Reclaim Israel for the Jews and the Jews alone. And and they're, they're singing, they're shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna to the, the king that has long been promised. Hosanna literally means, save us now, we pray. It sounds to us like a very pious prayer, very spiritual, Lord, Lord, save us. But at that time, it had become a nationalistic cry, almost like, God save the queen, or God bless America. So the crowds are are chanting Hosanna, and they're laying out their cloaks and the branches, saying, save us. Save us from all that is wrong in the world. Save us from our enemy. Save us from oppression. Save us from, in a word, Rome. Ride this donkey all the way to Pilate's palace, the Roman governor. Let's storm that palace. Let's take it. We're with you. But ride this colt down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the way to the cross, that doesn't compute. That doesn't match our expectations. That's not a part of this celebration. Their anticipation was misguided, and so their, their celebration is confused. And, and Jesus, he knows this. He understands this. Luke tells us that before he enters the city, 
he looks over it and he weeps. He says, I, I wish you would have understood what I was offering, but you've missed it. And because their anticipation was misguided, it, it, it leads to disillusionment, disenchantment. And it's understandable given the expectations that they had. If they were expecting a conquering king, Jesus doesn't look like that. He, he goes into Jerusalem and instead of overthrowing the governor and the Roman authorities, he says instead, you need to keep paying your taxes to Caesar. Render under Caesar that which is Caesar's. And he, instead of establishing again how they thought things ought to be, he says the temple is going to be destroyed. And he warns the religious leaders and says, woe to you, you religious leaders. He sounds more like a defeatist than a victor. And it's no wonder the crowds were, were disillusioned. Now, I'm not saying that this crowd is necessarily the exact same crowd that in a few days is going to be shouting, crucify him, crucify him. There may have been some overlap there, but it's likely that the city at this time, it's Passover. Tons of people, thousands upon thousands of people are flooding into the city. Sometimes, I, or somewhere I've read, upwards of three million people in the city at the time. So it's not that these crowds are identical, but you can understand this crowd, the one shouting Hosanna, uh, when Jesus doesn't meet their expectations, they're going to be disillusioned, disappointed. Even Jesus' own disciples feel that, so much so that one is about to betray him, Judas. Jesus didn't match his expectations of what Messiah was supposed to be. And so he turns them over. This disillusionment could be contagious. We could catch it if our expectations don't match Jesus's and what he's actually promised. What is our expectation of what Jesus does and should do for us? What is our understanding of salvation? And does it line up with Jesus's? If not, then we're going to be a part of that same arc leading from misguided anticipation and expectations to disillusionment. How do we avoid that? Well, so far, we focused on what the crowds got wrong. Let's stop that for a minute. That's kind of negative. Let's focus on, on what they got right. They didn't quite understand what they meant, but they were right when they were hailing Jesus as the son of David, the king, and singing, Hosanna, save us. It is right, it is good to hail Jesus as king. And to sing songs like crown him with many crowns. He is king. He is deserving. And that has impact on us now. Let's just take a minute and think about some of the implications of what it means to, to hail Jesus as king now.
First, if Jesus is king, he has a kingdom. Throughout history, you can read of uh, dispossessed kings who've been stripped of their authority, who live in exile, who don't have a kingdom, and they're pitiful, right? I mean, they're not people to be in awe of and to certainly not to worship. Jesus isn't a pitiful king without a kingdom. He is a glorious king, and he is reigning. The Gospels, from the very first word, want to impress upon us that Jesus is the king, and that the kingdom has dawned with his advent. Matthew begins, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus the son of David, the Christ. In other words, the king. And throughout Matthew's gospel, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God as at hand. It's here. It's now. It's real. When Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate, just a few short days from Palm Sunday, from his triumphal entry, Pilate says, are you really the king? Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 you you don't understand. He says, yes, I'm a king. My kingdom's not of this world. You can't see my kingdom with the naked eye. It's a spiritual kingdom, but it's real. And it's here. And it's advancing. And it's growing. And it can't be defeated. It might seem small. It might seem frail. But not even the gates of hell can prevail against my kingdom. My kingdom's here, and it's now, and it's indestructible. It's not yet here in its final, consummated form, but it's truly present. We live in this dynamic, this tension, this overlap between two ages, the present age and the age to come. With Jesus Breaking into history, the kingdom of God has broken into this present kingdom and the kingdom of this world. And the two, I almost said peacefully coexist. Scratch the word peacefully. The two coexist now for a time until Christ returns and the kingdom is finally consummated. The people on the hill that day didn't understand that dynamic of two kingdoms overlapping, two ages overlapping. The people on the hill that day expected a hard, fast break. The present age, the Messiah comes, the new age. The kingdom of this world, the Messiah comes, the kingdom of God. But in Jesus, and now we see the two kingdoms for a time overlapping. And this isn't just theological trivia. I mean, I I really do like theological trivia, but this isn't that. This has deep impact on how we understand our lives in the here, in the now. The kingdom is present, but not everything we see is the kingdom. The world isn't the kingdom. And as much as we might engage and work to better our society, 
to better our city, to better our country, to better the world, we will never succeed in transforming it into the kingdom of God. Ever. That doesn't mean we should withdraw. That doesn't mean we should stop engaging. That means we should, with steely determination, continue to be salt and light, continue to be the faithful presence, continue to work for justice and good. But again, with the realization, the humble realization, that we'll never reach perfection. We'll never transform it into the kingdom of God. And that's not just societal level. It's, it's, it's a personal thing, too. Jesus is my king. I submit to him. He watches over and he cares for me as a king cares for his Subjects, better than a king cares for his subjects. But sometimes my idea of care and God's look a little different. Sometimes my idea of protection and his look a little different. He has never promised to protect me from all physical ill and all physical harm. Matter of fact, you can make the case for the opposite. He's promised persecution and trials and suffering. That doesn't mean he isn't king. That doesn't mean he isn't reigning. It means he's working them all together for our good. But if we don't understand that, if we expect that because Jesus is my king, everything's going to be hunky-dory all the time, we'll be a part of that arc that leads from improper ill-informed anticipation to disillusionment. The king is real. Jesus is king. And the kingdom is here, and it's now, and it's advancing. The second implication, the king deserves our loyalty. And I should insert the word, but it just doesn't fit on the screen in one line, undivided loyalty. I think too often, I and I'm just going to read my own life into yours for a minute here. I struggle with that undivided part. I, I want to have one foot in the kingdom of this world and follow its agenda and march to the beat of its drum while still keeping one foot in this kingdom. But Jesus warned you can't do that. You can't have two masters. You'll love one and hate the other. I demand, I deserve undivided loyalty. So submitting to Jesus as king means renouncing everything to which we have given our loyalties. Repenting of everything to which we have given our loyalties. Think about all the things that that could be. Nation state, political party, agenda, the almighty dollar, a college basketball team, self. Submitting to Jesus as king means renouncing self, dying to self, means giving the king, your undivided loyalty, and expressing that loyalty in trust and obedience.
Uh, the third implication. Jesus is king. And the king can offer and is offering amnesty. The fact that the king is here, the kingdom is alive and well, that's great news if you're a loyal subject. The fact that King Arthur was returning to England was great news for the legendary Robin Hood and Maid Miriam, right? They were loyal subjects. The problem is that the Bible indicts me. It indicts all of us. We're not the loyal subjects we think we are. We're not the Robin Hoods and the Maid Mariams. We're the Sheriff of Nottingham's. We're the rebels, the usurpers. So the king is coming. The kingdom is alive. That's an inconvenient truth to rebels and usurpers. But we have a merciful, gracious king who is offering amnesty, offering pardon, giving his life to make it available to all those who would seek it and receive the forgiveness that he offers. What kind of king does that? What kind of king dies so that his enemies can live and be welcomed into the bounty of his eternal kingdom? This Palm Sunday, and every Sunday, and, and every day, and every hour of every day, we ought to hail Jesus as King, King of kings, Lord of lords. And one day, every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that to be true. And we long for that. We look forward to it. We wait for it. One day, Jesus will return to do what the people on that hillside thought he was going to do then. Eliminate all opposition to the kingdom. Eliminate enemies. Establish his holy kingdom. Reign in righteousness and holiness and perfect justice. Till then, we wait, we long, we anticipate with an anticipation that's fully shaped by the word of God. And we pray, we pray, Lord, let your kingdom come, and may you find us faithful when you return. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, we thank you for your word and how it shapes, it shapes our expectations, it shapes our longings, it shapes our affections. We pray that that would happen this morning, that through your Spirit's work in our lives and in our hearts, all of our thoughts and even our feelings would be transformed, brought into alignment with what you have truly indeed promised us. Father, help us to be faithful in our longing, faithful in our expectancy, even faithful in our celebration of who you are and what you have done for us to allow us to become not outsiders, but sons and daughters in your kingdom. We thank you for the glory of that truth. We pray that it would shape us even this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.